you. What about this one for my nephew? A superb choice. Oh, great. Yeah, provided he has already read Infinite Crisis and 52 and is familiar with the reestablishment of the DC multiverse. Who am I? Cypher? The gayest X-Man? I recently read this novel called Watchmen. I've never read a comic book like this. I used to read Betty comics, but that's it. I've never read, like, real, real comic books. This worked my out. Excellent! Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. This week is part two of our coverage of Starfighter. I'm not going to bother to recap what happened last week. You either listened to it or you didn't. Go listen to it. We're going to be covering chapters three and four of the webcomic Starfighter by Hamlet Machine, um, with additional story credit to Fizbay and additional coloring by Ono Robo. And like we said last time, starfightercomic.com, you can read it for free. But if you want the physical print editions that we'll be reading out of, get on that because Hamlet Machine has stated that they're not going to be reprinted. So if this episode gets you interested, go snag a copy while you can. But yeah, shall we just dive right in? Uh, chapter 3 just picks up right where we left off last week with Abel having just informed Kane that he has volunteered the two of them for the upcoming mission to go into Colteran space, which is infamous as a dangerous place that no one comes back alive from. And so Kane is pissed the fuck off, both because it's dangerous and deadly and also because his navigator got to just volunteer him for a death mission so regardless of how horrible kane has been up until this point i get it yeah uh i i critiqued the military command structure last episode i will probably have more critiques this episode and i know next episode for the final part i will have even more uh it's an absolutely insane system while the two are arguing over this we get a flashback during this fight of Kane having a conversation with Commander Baring, and essentially it's just Kane being confused over what the exact parameters of his current mission is, because as we sort of got allusions to earlier in the comic, Kane is doing some sort of secret work for Commander Baring beyond just being a fighter on his ship. And we still don't get, like, an explicit spelling out of what's happening here. But we essentially have Kane asking Baring, what's going on? Is he not supposed to do any sort of training? And Baring just sort of tells him that he should just keep going the current course and Abel's abilities will just sort of develop and show themselves over time. Uh, specifically that Abel will fulfill his potential. See, I thought this was some kind of genetic engineering thing, but, well, we find out later. Yeah. Kane ends up just shirking Abel off. He leaves, and shortly after this, we just zip forward in time to Kane and Abel and the other volunteer pilots going aboard the sleep near which is the new ship that they will be residing on on their trip into Colteran space. It's the, like, fleet ship. And conveniently, more or less, all of the previously major characters are also going to be on this ship. Well, like, everyone volunteered after, um, after Abel did. Yeah. Like, basically the whole ship's going onto this new ship. Including the other navigators who, when Abel volunteered, we got the panels of them looking pissy and just like, this teacher's pet, but then they followed along because they also still want to impress. And we get uh, Abel's narration about his time on the new ship and describes meeting the lead navigator, who is Keeler, who seems on the navigator's side to essentially be like the height of command beneath the actual commander's. And meanwhile, uh, Kane and the other fighters are introduced to lead fighter Inke, 
who basically does the whole take no shit, do your job, there will be no problems as long as you don't give me an attitude sort of spiel introduction. And those are probably the two biggest like new characters that we meet on this ship. They're more or less, I think, like the only pivotal characters here that we didn't already get introduced to in chapters one and two. But in the meantime, uh, Abel and Kane's relationship is progressing in what seems like a pretty healthy domestic little way. Their new quarters are cramped as hell. Like even if the previous military ship quarters were cramped, these are even more so. They're sleeping with each other right next to each other both out of desire and also out of physically not really having a choice. And we get just sort of a cute little series of snippets of, like, it being Kane's idea that they sleep together. Then we get Abel doing some sort of typing away on whatever computer interface, working on what he's working on. And then Kane, like, throwing a pillow at him, being like, I'm gonna throw that fucking thing out of the airlock if you don't stop. Just a lot of them sort of getting along in a way that's not constantly hitting each other, basically. So it seems like a market improvement. We also get scenes between the lead, navigator and lead, fighter, who are a pair themselves, uh, Inke and Keeler. They don't seem like a couple at this point, but there's some definite tension between them, like, it feels like, oh, they care for each other, but they're sort of, like, dancing around acting on anything. Uh, as time passes on the ship, it's also not long before the fighters are up to their usual bullshit, fighting each other, macho fist fight matches, NK breaks one up, basically tells them, next person who does this gets locked up in the brig until we're back out of Kulturan space. They won't get to play the hero. They won't get to fight the enemy. They'll just be stuck. And as part of this, he also specifically has a one-on-one -on -one conversation telling Kane specifically to knock it out. And that he is aware that Kane is up to something under Commander Baring's orders, but essentially says that he's not going to put up with bullshit regardless. So specifically he says... You want to impress someone, impress me. Yeah, that basically is the establishment of the new setting. It's more or less the same as the old setting because still just everybody living on a ship and basically the same like social hierarchy and main cast of characters with the addition of the new two leads. And they're gonna go fight some aliens. They're gonna go fight some aliens. They're on a bug hunt. Yeah, we barely get any sight of the actual aliens and what they look like throughout, but we do get, like, a couple quick shots. And they're sort of, from what we can see, like, insectoid-looking. Like, just sort of, like, big, like, bulky, sort of, like, a black pill bug sort of design or, like, armored-looking carapace. What do you think of the Colterans? They exist. <laughs> they're fine. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. That's we fair. See them, and like what little we see, I'm like, yeah, that's okay. They're religious fanatics and uh, bugs, so it's sort of like the Covenant from Halo. They're the Covenant from Halo. It's like I like what little we see of them, but we do barely see them. We don't really get a whole lot of backstory. We get like some of just characters at one point mentioning just like. And that was the day the Colterans attacked, and, like, they also claimed Mars. And so it's become sort of this territorial alien versus human thing for Mars, for sake of claiming Mars. But we never really get, like, specific Colterans as, like, real persistent characters or anything like that. Because at the end of the day, this, this book is about these guys fucking on this ship. And the aliens are just the excuse of what the ship is moving towards. Speaking of which, you said that not every character in this book was gay. And I'm like, there is like maybe one who is not confirmed to be into men by the end of this. Maybe. Is and there like, even frankly, one? <laughs> it, I, 
I'm Commander Baring is like the only one we don't see in a sexual situation with a man by the end of this book, from what I can tell. And you know what? Commander Baring's probably gay too. You lied to me. <laughs> I suppose I didn't mean to intentionally. I think if I'm remembering the conversation, I think more what I meant was like the, the structure is not designed for all these people to be fucking. Yeah, like but they all wind up fucking. Yeah, I don't think that it's a do-ask, do-tell situation where homosexuality is, like, a requisite qualifier for serving. It just so happens to be the case. It's like the Catholic priesthood, with the obvious exceptions. But it's in this future, this is where you go if you're the gay kid in the family. It certainly is where you go if you're the gay kid in the case of Abel, at least, yeah. The issue of sexuality in this narrative, you know, from a meta level, it's like, okay, we're all gay because this is a gay smut book, so you've all got to be gay to do the smut, you know, which makes sense. And, you know, none of this is, like, us complaining because it is what it is. You know, none of it is, like, us seriously having, like, a negative to it. It's like, in-universe, there are, like, the occasional mentions of like actual homophobia still being a thing and everything but whether due to everyone being gay or like situational homosexuality or whatever the end result is that it's one big gay army which in real life would be a bad thing because they'd still be an army but this is a sci-fi porn book where the war doesn't matter and what matters is that they fuck and they're doing exactly what they're meant to do so this is the book where the big damn kiss that would be, like, the end of the comic happens, but then there's also, like, five or six pages of them fucking afterwards. And it keeps happening. <laughs> but, yeah, after all of this just sort of getting us reoriented on the new ship, we get a little scene flashing to another location We don't get, like, a specific caption or narrative conceit telling us specifically where this is. Just somewhere under human occupation, we get our next glimpse of Mother. Essentially just this sort of, like, futuristic sci-fi architecture building. It looks like a temple. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to think of how to describe it, but it does have sort of, like, a religious feel to it. Yeah, well, because Mother having the robes and then, like, the three women, like we just talked about last time, has a lot of, like, connotations relating to mythology and, like, classical stuff like that. And then, like, you've got them in a building and it's round and it's white and it's got a tall spire. And, like, all of those are, like, frequent indicators of religious buildings. Like, old religions, they were always round. Yeah, but essentially at this, like temple-ish location we get all of these women and from what we can tell it is specifically all women every aspect of this series is like very like sexually segregated and here we have our sort of like greek muse figures there's more than three now yeah yeah um because in the original panel where like mother was first discussed last time it showed us just the free Here we get a room of, like, six or seven women, and it's not entirely clear if they're all part of Mother, or if, like, some of them are Mother and some are just helpers, because there is a point where, like, one of the women, like, calls out to another one and says Mother, which could mean, like, calling to the one specifically that are Mother, or sort of a, to me, my X-Men sort of thing, you know? There's a bit of a question of, like, who falls under what specifically. But the topic of discussion, essentially, is that the Alliance is sending their ship into Colteran space, and they want counsel from Mother. And one who is seeming to act in sort of, like, a leadership capacity just says, Our warning stands. The device's song grows stronger. A swell of aggression... Anger, the Colterans ready an invasion, the Alliance must strike before it's too late. And we essentially see this piece of Colteran technology. Looks like a beetle. 
Yeah, it looks like a beetle to sort of like fit the insectoid aesthetic we mentioned earlier. And Mother is evidently somehow like studying this piece of alien technology, which we then cut back to the sleepner where Abel is working on a new assignment given to him by the commanders, which as far as he knows is just to test some sort of new like engine technology on his ship. But the schematics, the way that we see them of how the panels are laid out for this new piece of tech look an awful lot like the piece of alien tech that Muffer was looking at just the page before. So giving us the cue as the reader that, oh, there's something going on with the Alliance using the alien technology, although this is information that Abel himself does not know. Um, we then cut shortly afterward to Praxis, who... Oh, God. <laughs> Praxis is the fellow fighter from the Tiberius who Cain and Abel saved back in Chapter 1. He's the one who used a racial slur for Cain. Yeah, him, he's the one who did that, and visually is the one of the eye patch. He looks like Xander from Buffy. Yeah. And we get this sequence of Abel coming up to his room, being like, I don't want to be Kane's navigator anymore. I want to be yours. And him, like, quickly sexually coming on to Praxis. They start getting it on. It's also all bound up in, like, weird stuff about, like... It, Praxis has a weird thing about Abel being a virgin, which, like, Abel isn't at this point. But for some reason, he's really concerned that he should be. Yeah. It's weird. The scene it basically ends with Praxis coming. We shift and realize it's just him coming, having masturbated in his room. It's all been... Like his fantasy, Abel did not actually come to see him. It's just been Praxis jacking off to the thought of not only does Abel want me and not Cain, but he's virginal and Cain has not touched him. I get to be the first to touch him. We brought up this weird shit about like this whole virginal thing in uh, our since past coverage. Last time this came up in a comic where someone was weirdly concerned about that, where they made Peter Parker weirdly concerned about that. Um, this I know it's a characterizing beat to be, because go, oh yeah, Praxis fucking sucks actually. But I gotta say, it's real weird to be like, I really want my sexual partner to be as inexperienced as possible, please. Yeah. If they could just like not know what they're doing, that would be great. And there's sort of just like the aura of like possessiveness to it, of like... You know, last time we got the fight between Praxis and Kane of Praxis being like, maybe Abel wants someone less possessive, except then his wet dreams about it are just him being the one doing the possessing. Yeah. Not as violently as Kane at the very beginning, but still. The Kane is now literally just not going to be violent again for the rest of this fucking comic. Yeah. Towards Abel, to be clear. Towards Abel. Towards Abel. <laughs> he will be violent otherwise. He did, like, that one little bit, and now he's done. It's very strange how that aspect of the comic immediately turns off circa about halfway through chapter three. It's the power of love. It's beginning to warm its way into his heart. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, after Praxis finishes touching himself and goes to clean up in the bathroom... A lot of masturbation in this comic. A whole lot of masturbation, yeah. yeah. Um, he sort of flashes back to back when Abel had been pissed off, like, I saved your life, you can give me some information. And Praxis is clearly feeling guilty about not having been helpful before. So he's sort of resolving himself to go do that. At which point his partner, uh, the navigator Efo, shows up and starts to talk to him, but... Praxis just blows him off, doesn't really give a shit about anything his partner has to say because he has to go talk to Abel. And on the bridge, we get Commander Cook talking with uh, Keeler and some other navigators, essentially just saying that if the mission's going to be successful, they can't be detected by Colteran patrols ahead of time. So they're going to send a few scout ships out ahead of the rest of them to just sort of get surveillance and be eyes ahead. And 
From there, we transition to the mess hall. This might be our first real view of it. If we saw it in the first two chapters, it would only have been briefly. But yeah, the cafeteria where we can see that the navigators and the fighters are sitting on opposite sides of the room. It's just so strange if you want these people to work as these two-person units to make every other aspect of their day aside from their bunks so like literally segregated different command structures like they sit at different sides of the lunchroom like i think this is implied to be a culture thing rather than a a, like policy but you would create policy to try and undermine this because you don't want this to be what happens it's just so weird it's so weird it's interesting yeah it's like because we continue to get you know, some more of just the sense of, you know, a lot of the navigators look down on the fighters. There's the whole, we're superior to them. And then likewise, the fighters thinking of the navigators as being like too delicate and weak. Except, of course, for all of the pairs that are the stars of the story who all, not even slowly, but rather quickly fall in love with each other. But at the mess hall... Um, Ephos is talking with Abel. They talk about, like, their own relationships to their respective fighters. And Ephos thinks that Cain and Abel seem to have a great relationship, which catches Abel off guard. (laughs) Although, like you said, Cain's been getting much less violent at this point. Their relationship has been improving quite a bit compared to when the comic first started, and Ephos's concern is that Praxis doesn't talk to him, uh, that they haven't been, like, practicing enough as a unit, and Abel's just kind of like, just keep trying, you know? He did just lose his previous navigator. He's probably in a bit of mourning, so just try trying again, but be a bit more firm about practicing more, and Ephos is just kind of like, okay, thanks, yeah. He feels younger than them. I don't know why, but Ephos just does feel younger than everyone else. He has, like, the most, like, innocent, childish... and features are, like, rounder and wider. Yeah, he's sort of like the puppy dog eyes character of the fleet. I'm shocked his codename isn't Ganymede. Oh my god. (laughs) I'm shocked no one's codename is Ganymede, actually, given all the mythological references. But Ephos is Ganymede. (laughs) Yeah, um, he might be slightly younger than the others, or even if he's the same age, it's giving very, like, this is the more bashful, like, sort of less aggressive and less confident. He's the Dustin. Dustin? Stranger Things reference. Okay, haven't seen it. But yeah, he seems, I don't want to overstate it in comparison to other characters who very literally do, but he seems like he might have, like, a little bit of a crush on Abel, too, or at least just admires him a lot, because everyone likes Abel. Everyone wants Abel. Abel is the, um, crap, what's Bella's last name in Twilight? He's Swan? Be- Swan, you're right. He's the Bella Swan of this place. He walks in, and everyone's like, <gasps> you can tell I watched Twilight really recently in order to laugh at it, and was just like, why is literally everybody immediately horny for Bella? She hasn't done anything. She has walked in the room. <laughs> he is the most sought-after twink on the sleep near, possibly in the entire army. <laughs> but, yeah, as they're talking, we also see Kane and Deimos. Did I pronounce that right? Yeah, I think so. Deimos, Deimos, doesn't matter. Maybe it's pronounced differently in the future. Kane and... Uh, Demos also arrive, and Kane decides he's going to go sit with uh, Ephos and Abel, to which, without actually talking, but through his body language, his little nods and stuff, because Demos still isn't talking, just makes it clear, like, what the fuck are you thinking? We sit separately. <laughs> Let's not. But at the end of the day, he is literally... Kane's mouse, his mousy little follower. And yeah, Kane leads the two of them over to go sit with the navigators. 
they only talk briefly as Abel just sort of starts asking questions to like be like, what's this dude's deal? Why don't you let him talk? Demos is allowed to talk. He just doesn't. I never know how to feel about Demos. I like him as a character. I think he's interesting because just like his whole deal of being like, whereas most of the characters are infatuated with Abel, Demos is infatuated with Cain to the point of being willing to just sort of be his little servant and do whatever Cain says without getting anything in return. Except for occasionally being incredibly sexually aggressive and trying to assault him. Yeah. But I can't figure him out because the rest of the time he's so, like, reserved, obviously. Yeah, it's like, it's like he has both a kink for, like, being dominated and being, like, submissive and servile. And also, like, a kink for doing all this to get those occasional moments of praise of, like, yeah, walk all over me, tell me what to do. Oh, once a month you tell me I'm a good boy. <laughs> when I make sure to actually keep an eye on Abel and don't lose him in the hallway this time. But yeah, Kane is just like, he's not good at talking. And at that point, um, the same two jackass navigators who have been giving Abel a hard time since the previous chapters show up, um, Porphos and Phobos, and they're just kind of like, why the fuck are there fighters on our side of the cafeteria? Are there not enough seats now? It's like the school lunchroom. Yeah, it's it's very like, there's no actual assigned seats because why would there be? But it's just the social strata of it all. And like of all the navigators, these two are maybe the ones that most buy into the sort of really rigid, like hierarchical structure they're the mean girls. They are the mean girls. The jealousy of Abel. The anger at everyone that they think gets things that they don't deserve that they should have gotten instead. They start talking shit. They almost get in a fight with Cain. Abel backs them down. It all just sort of diffuses from there. And no sooner than the tension is resolved than it ramps right back up. Because we get a alerts coming in over the intercom. It's nothing but tension in this comic. There's always tension. Gotta gotta keep them on their toes, and specifically, gotta get the sexual tension going at all times. It's social tension, uh, like war tension or sexual tension, and that's it. So you you're gonna get one of them every scene. Everybody's got just like the tightest, most wound up muscles at all times. <laughs> Everyone could really benefit from... So, there are implications to the sentence. Everyone could benefit from a good stretch. I didn't immediately mean for that to be a double entendre. <laughs> they do that enough. As we said, this is a masturbation-heavy comic. <laughs> Sometimes mutual masturbation, even. Yep, yep. Before everyone can leave the cafeteria to go fuck, they get called to go to their ships for the attack first. Um, essentially what's happened is that an enemy patrol has intercepted the scout ships, so the Colterans are now aware of their presence, and the goal is going to be to shoot down these Colterans to take them out and avoid the enemy base finding out just, like, how close they are, you know, that they're coming. They basically want to try and preserve as much element of surprise as they can they do they not have space radios maybe they're at least like far enough out of range that there's a chance they can still prevent contact i suppose sure yeah the military specifics don't matter everyone's just here to stretch and (laughs) anyway basically we just switch into one of our space battle modes um that's a pretty cool one you get some neat shots of the ships they look like chunky planes yeah I think the most notable part of this battle sequence for me is when one of the Colteran ships is sending a transmission out and they patch it through to listen and the font changes in these captions to just sort of mimic the idea of here's an alien voice. It probably sounds notably different from a human voice, you know, 
just sort of a nice little touch of let's differentiate the alien speech as much as we can while still having it rendered in English so we can understand it. And we just get a nice classic human with like the hyphen between and the shots of the bug person typing away with its uh, four-fingered hand. Little shots of the carapace. Looks cool, like we said earlier. Uh, specifically says, human cowards, dot, dot, dot. Exterminate. We just watched the Dalek episode of Ninth Doctor? Yep. Yes. Exterminate. Um, <laughs> I wish. Imagine this comic, but with Daleks in it instead. I, I am coming around on Daleks. I am liking them more. <laughs> They're not as good in comics, I think, because the problem with that is you don't get the voices. Yeah, it's like the Dalek comics were good, but I feel like, I don't know, I feel like having those voices in head now enhances them a lot. Yeah. But anyway, this is not a Dalek comic. This is a gay sex comic. So... You could do, like, some hentai with Daleks. I'm not thinking about that. <laughs> I'm not thinking about that. Um, during the fight, Abel decides to sort of take the fight head on to the last of the Colteran ships. Uh, both ships are just sort of, like, racing toward each other directly in, like, such a way at such a range where Cain and Abel are going to be at risk of, like, being fucked up by, like, the resultant explosions. But they manage to avoid damage because at a key moment, we see the alien technology of, like, the experimental Colteran engine on the Reliant just short of glowing. And the Reliant's Cain and Abel ship disappears from scanners for a moment before reappearing. And Abel has activated the sort of teleportation tech to get him and Kane out of the way of the explosion in time to survive it and return back to the base on the sleep near with everyone else. Celebrate their victory, and when they get out of the ship, we get Kane looking probably the happiest we've ever seen him up until this point, where he is just smiling widely, throwing his arms around Abel, hugging him, embracing him, Everyone else that's arrived as they, like, come out of the ship are all, like, cheering for the two of them for being the heroes, taking down the final enemy ship of the day. And everyone's excited except for the usual bitch-ass navigators who are jealous as always and look pissed. But that's fine. That doesn't get in the way of a good stretch because as soon as they're back home, Kane takes Abel right back to their room they make out in the elevator because they can't fucking wait. Yeah, they start out in the elevator. They're getting it on before they even fully make their way back. But they get back to their bunk. Kane's telling Abel what a great job he did and how he couldn't wait to get back there with him. And they're fucking. They're having celebratory fucking. Kane seems to have a level of emotional investment in it that he hasn't had up to this point we get like a kiss mid-coitus that's like much more romantic than we've gotten prior to this point in the comic uh kane specifically says i've never wanted anyone as bad as i want you so just things are progressing um meanwhile uh commander Baring is talking to commander cook not in person via via future sci-fi skype on their laptops and we get Bering just saying, we couldn't have asked for a better outcome. The boy has shown remarkable progress. And that conversation gets cut off when one of the other navigators, one who I don't believe has had any speaking role before this part, um, arrives in Commander Cook's office, says, you called for me, sir? And Cook just sort of smiles down at him we get memory flashbacks to him seeing the scar on Abel's lips that is the result of Kane's possessive mark. Um, Cook brings his own finger up to this navigator's mouth. They fuck. They fuck. Um, it's going to become a clear plot point 
here, and it'll be referenced throughout after this, that basically Commander Cook has a thing for fucking his charges, like finding navigators and just, you know, abusing his authority to hook up with them. Um, I guess just for clarity's sake, again, you know, these are all adults, and it's inappropriate, obviously, like, structural-wise, and, like, the, uh, the conduct is obviously very inappropriate. I would not say Cook is meant to be a, uh, good guy in this story, though. Yeah, yeah. Cook is maybe the most despicable person in the entire series. So, it's fine that bad guy do bad things. Yeah. Also, I just kind of find the dialogue, fuck me, sir, fuck me harder, to be kind of funny. It is, yeah. <laughs> um, I guess just want to be clear about just, like, sort of, like, what type of immoral these actions are of just, like, you know, like, these aren't, like, underage boys, you know, these are all still adults, you know. Yeah. But it's giving, like, that sort of scummy thing of, like, oh, even if your charge is attracted to you, and, like, the younger guy, like, is clearly, like, excited by it. It's still just, like, here's this commander using his position to get a lot of ass on the ship. He's scummy. And... It's also not a multi-page sequence. It is a panel to illustrate precisely what is happening so that we know for sure. Yeah, it's much more of, like... Whenever we get the fun Cain Abel stuff, that's, that's multiple pages. Yeah, this is a much briefer sort of just giving us the plot beats versus the multi-page Cain and Abel sequences where... The fuckfests. The fuckfests, which also have to be longer to show how they love each other. They're falling in love. <laughs> but we cut from Cook fucking one of the navigators to Cain uh, and Abel having a little bit of pillow talk after sex, by which I mean looking at each other affectionately, and then, is it pillow talk if it's after sex, if it's also just before fucking again immediately? Between talk, um, basically, Abel's just like, have you ever wanted, you know, to switch? I could do the, you know. <laughs> basically, it's just uh, Abel being like, do you want a bottom? Can we try that? And Kane being like, sure. Abel's surprised at first, but... They go through with it, and they have sex with Kane as the bottom for the first time. It's basically just continuing the sort of display of how the relationship is progressing and getting more, like, intimate and... Equal. Yeah, equal. This feels like a turning point just because it does change the dynamic. Yeah, it's, like, a very obvious display of oh, Kane is not inherently going to be dominating, you know? And, yeah, they're uh, getting lovey-dovey. For the rest of the comic, that's the thing about this. This is, like, fully the end of, like, even that vibe with this guy. Yeah. And after waking up post-sex, Kane is gone at this point. We see Abel waking up alone. He receives intercom instruction to report to the loading bay to work on ship repairs. And as he's going down the hall and smiling to himself, thinking about the sex he just had, he gets grabbed from behind a figure who is clad in black, so indicating that this is one of the fighters uh, due to the color-coded uniforms. Uh, this figure just grabs him from behind, covers his mouth, shushing him, and that is the end of chapter three. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, it, I, I'd say it's about on par with uh, chapters one and two. Okay. Decent cliffhanger. Yeah. How are you feeling about sort of like the progression of the change in the main character's relationship? I find it believable, especially given information later. Like, I don't think Kane is actually into being dominating. It increasingly becomes sort of clear that, like, to some extent, that was kind of an act. Yeah. And so, like, all of the initial concerns just sort of slowly go away. Because, like, Abel gets, in even the first two volumes, a lot of opportunities to actually make decisions and have agency. And in by the end of this volume, it doesn't. It, that's just gone from their dynamic entirely. Yeah, and it is... It reads as a healthy relationship from this point on. 
Except for, you know, the obvious, like, last minute, oh no, that's gonna happen in every romance comic. But I mean, like, this is the point where you're supposed to actually start rooting for him. Yeah, and like, as the events keep unfolding, all the sort of context is gonna, I think, you know, make Kane more sympathetic, and we're getting more sense of he's not just cartoonishly evil. It's so weird that they called them Cain and Abel. I love it. <laughs> well, given the information we get later, I'm like, it's even more weird now. You should have called them Zeus and Ganymede. Maybe Ganymede's the one getting bent over the commander's desk. He doesn't get named. You're right, that's Ganymede. That's Ganymede. But anyway, we're gonna go ahead and move into chapter four. I quite like the opening to this chapter. We open up with the scene of Cain walking by foot through this snowy landscape. It's Mars, I think, right? I think it's meant to be, yeah. yeah. To what looks like the only building in sight sort of refuge that he walks into. It's giving like a bar or a tavern sort of vibes. Everyone's sort of circled around their respective tables and such. And... We get Kane greeting these people and him being like, is it really you? You know, he's clearly recognizing a lot of these people. Um, they ask him what took him so long to show up. He tells them that he's been having this dream about time on a ship that they wouldn't believe. And it all felt so real. Um, the characters make reference to this being the colonies, which is where Kane is from. Which, like, are the colonies on Mars. I think humanity is only on Mars and a bunch of spaceships on Earth right now. I think so, yeah. That's, like, the vibe I got. The colonies are just, like, essentially the different colonies on Mars. Yeah. And just as Kane is sort of settling in to having a drink with the boys back home... How did they account for the gravitational differences? The power of love and gay sex. That's how. <laughs> they fucked... Mars until it got denser so there was more gravity. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's all the power of love. That's all we need. I'm just saying the X-Men accounted for it when they terraformed that shit. So you might... I I'm just curious. <laughs> Maybe if the X-Men were gayer, they would have need to put less work in. <laughs> because this group does manage to be gayer than the X-Men. Because they're allowed to be. Yeah, yeah, it was Magneto who uh, fixed the whole, like, Mars isn't dense enough thing. And that is a character where they probably just need to say it at this point. Yeah. Anywho, um, at this point, as they're all settling in, the door opens once again. We get Abel walking in. When Kane sees him, he looks sort of distraught. And Abel is calling out to the room, says that he's looking for a man named Kane. Has anyone seen him? And the people around Cain are just like, who is that? Because they don't recognize the name Cain because it's not Cain's real name. You know, the people back home would have no reason to know him by this military moniker. And essentially, Cain doesn't reach out, doesn't respond. Um, as Abel is talking to some more of the people... They're just not in the mood for it. They throw him right the fuck back out into the snow and go right back to their drinking. And we get um, Abel just being like, Cain, why won't you help me? And at this point, we flash back to the dorm room on the sleepener with Cain waking up wide-eyed from this dream he's just had as he and Abel are lying next to each other naked after the sex from the end of the last volume and Kane leaves while Abel is still asleep meets up with Commander Baring and they're essentially talking about what happened at the end of the last battle with the teleportation technology and Baring's just sort of explaining to Kane that that is what happened uh, because before this Kane you know also would have not really known what the fuck was happening and Baring informs him that this modified engine reacts to Navigator's strong emotional desires. In Abel's case, the desire to protect. And Baring tells Kane he should be proud of himself, that he's come a long way from being in over his head in the colonies. And we get some like flashback panels 
uh, basically stating that the higher-ups had been close to giving up on Kane, didn't think he had it in him to succeed in this mission, especially after what happened with his first two navigators, who we see the first one demanded reassignment, and the other got injured during a training accident. And basically, Baring is telling Kane how close he came to getting expelled from the military, and almost certainly would have if Abel had not responded to him the way that he was, and they had formed such a strong connection. Because this alien space engine is powered by love, and so they need to engineer that in the relationship between these two, which is why they have, of course, called them Cain and Abel after the very famous brother who murdered his other brother. Like, they've named them after not only a guy who's killed someone else, but family members. But they want them to fall in love. Can't make it too obvious. I'm saying there's a million other options. Can't just call them Romeo and Juliet. That's almost worse. <laughs> but anyway... Um... Harry and Sally. There we go. But anyway, Baring just tells Kane to keep up the good work. And we then flash back to the end of last volume with Abel uh, basically getting abducted. Um, we see that it is Praxis who has grabbed him and hidden him in this sort of little side alcove in the hall. Through which they sort of like are able to watch through these slats where like they can see through but the others can't. And they sort of watch Deimos, who's walking around looking for Abel because he's been trying to keep an eye on him for Cain. Because as we said earlier, he is Cain's lapdog. And Deimos realizes he's fucked up and lost track of Abel. He runs off. And Praxis essentially tells Abel that he's ready to give him information like he had asked for previously. And he reveals that he first saw Cain on the transport ship en route to their original station that was carrying fighters from the colonies, these including Kane and Praxis and multiple other fighters in the army. Um, Praxis says that Kane was a figure that the other fighters all naturally gravitated towards. Um, they were talking about their future navigators Kane was already acting up the dominance sort of possessiveness thing and telling everyone that they weren't allowed to talk or touch his navigator. One of them was just like, we're all going to have code names. How are we going to know who's yours? And Kane says, you'll know mine. He'll have a scar. And yeah, it's just sort of a flashback scene of Kane sort of establishing dominance early on, even with the other fighters. And Praxis just goes on to say that he knows Kane is some sort of lackey to Commander Baring. He calls Kane two-faced and a liar. Abel's getting pissed off and telling him to stop. You know, he's just sort of getting the sense that Praxis hates Kane. Maybe he's jealous. Abel's right. Yeah, like, nothing Praxis is saying is wrong, but he's not saying it to help out Abel. He's saying it because he wants Abel and he doesn't like Cain. And he wants to influence Abel away from Cain and into his comforting arms instead. Anyway, Abel's not having any of it, is telling Praxis how he doesn't know either of them well at all, as... Abel begins to walk away. Praxis calls after him, telling him that Cain had called him a slut. Halfway through this conversation, by the way, Cain had caught up to them and was like listening in from out of sight to the rest of the conversation. So Cain is aware that all of this has happened. We then get some like brief scenes between other navigator fighter pairs. We get Praxis going to Ethos and offering to help around on the ship. And Ethos just being happy that, oh, finally, my fighter is paying attention to me. Well, that's really just because Abel was like, go and fucking help Ethos, you jackass. Yeah, not so much that it was Praxis's first idea, so much as the guy I like has told me off. I guess I can go do this now because I have to go do something. Meanwhile, NK finds Keeler, 
who is clearly going through some sort of physical issue, almost passing out, very weak. And we get some, like, flashbacks to their first times meeting as well, and their sort of awkwardness around each other, and both, like, telling each other that they can, like, let down the front and be comfortable with each other, but neither one is, like, immediately willing to do that. Meanwhile, back to the hater brigade of just the mean girl navigators, and uh, Porphos is discussing how he knows about some hidden intel. He knows that Commander Cook is up to something, and he's going to go find out more about it. And essentially, we get a scene of, like, this is the moment in the spy movie where the spy, like, fuck somebody and then when their partner goes to shower then they sit down at their computer to like hack and get all the information they need while the other person's showering but i think more notable than the actual information extraction here is that we essentially just get more specific reference to the fact that what happened with cook having sex with one of the navigators last time isn't a one-off thing and his repeated behavior that he's known for. And it's clear here that Porphos, in fact, had such relations with Cook himself in the past. And they just sort of have this, like, biting interaction where they keep... Cook's just sort of trying to get him out of there. And it's very clear that their prior relationship ended poorly with Porphos calling him a creep. True. He is correct. They just, Cook is so bad, he made me agree with Porphos. Yeah, but in order to get the information, Porphos has essentially resigned himself to playing up seduction. They nudge dicks, which was just funny. They do nudge dicks. There's a little nudge, which is the thing that I really like, is because you have like a lot of the, like the little sort of lettering notes next to things sometimes in this comic that we talked about a bit more last episode and in this case we got a little nudge as the two dicks to sort of dry hump each other for a second nudge nudge <laughs> um specifically porphos is walking in as the navigator from last time is just walking out he has a hickey he's like bashfully running out saying excuse me and then Porphos walks in and says, they just keep getting younger, don't they? And... Yeah, it's it, that kid's name is Ganymede, and Cook is fucked up. Yeah. And Cook specifically refers to Porphos by the name Jules. So, assumedly, his real name, with them having had an intimate enough relationship, or I guess just at least the, like, senior position of authority who would have access to that information... Um, he's just like, what do you want? I'm busy. I hope his last name is Vern. Sure. Why not? What follows is like part sparring match, but also one that Porphos is trying to keep very controlled to segue back into seduction with like Cook being like, did you come here for anything or just to run your mouth? And then Porphos going, you used to like it when I ran my mouth. And cook going what are you up to last time we spoke you said i was a pathetic perverted old man true 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 and essentially just porphos sits in his lap it's just like stop talking about other men nudge nudge it works nudging works yep and then cook fucks him in his chair porphos nudged it was extremely effective it was extremely effective <laughs> And while... He just finished with the other one. I'm like, that's a quick turnaround. Sure was. <laughs> um, a very short refractory period. After the act's done, he goes to use the shower. And during that time, Porphos is getting into Cook's computer, hacking or whatever to find information about Kane and Project Phoebe's... Cook has not learned how to use the lock function on his computer. That or just, like, has an obvious enough password that one of his prior little charge-slash-playboys was able to quickly, easily guess. Uh, we just get him going, holy shit, as he reads the information 
although we don't get like all the details laid out here because we have to have suspense and piecemeal it. And then he, of course, disappears before Cook actually finishes showering and comes out to find the room empty. Meanwhile, we get just more of N.K. and Keeler with Keeler revealing that he has what he refers to as flawed genetic mods. We don't get a lot of specifically what that means, but some sort of sci-fi health issues that he bribed army officials to ignore to approve his, I don't know, enlistment, whatever you want to call it. And essentially, NK is being very caring and refusing to leave him alone when he's feeling sick, is taking him to the medical bay, just, here's another gay team of partners. Picks him up in his arms and carries him away. It's very romantic. Like, this one's played more like pure romance. There's no, um, seven pages of fucking. Yeah, no seven pages of fucking. And no, like, initial cycle of, like, vying for domination. Meanwhile, we also then shift to a flashback of early days of these fighters and their first times meeting each other and how Kane and Deimos first met each other and just sort of showing us Deimos's like immediate infatuation with Kane and his like coming on hard to him like wrapping his leg around Kane Kane being like what the fuck you're fucking weird but I have a job for you and he basically says you're small and quiet good at sneaking around if you help me keep an eye on my little princess, it could work out well for both of us. We could be a team. What do you say? And we get just sort of Deimos, like, in the shower alone, watching another couple people fucking in the showers. Again, this is officially frowned upon, but also it's normal enough that they're just sort of doing it in the open showers like they're at a bathhouse. It's just what we do here on the gay space sex station. But yeah, Deimos is clearly just not pleased with the fact that, oh yeah, he signed up to be Kane's lapdog and he's not getting anything out of it. And tries to tell Kane that he's going to quit and not do this anymore. And he's noticed that Kane never called his other navigators by their names, but he does do that with Abel. And it's changed, and it's because Kane is falling for him. Deimos just does another attempt of convincing him, I'm a fighter like you. We're both from the colonies. We should be together. Kane refutes him. Deimos is just like, I can't believe you care for him. Which, Kane denies caring about Abel, which, you're a liar. Yeah, that's bullshit. <laughs> you're a very obvious liar. The two then meet back up. Uh, the two, I mean, Abel and Cain, just meet back up at the Reliance, where they're all prepping for their upcoming next adventure into Colterran space. And, or, they're in Colterran space, but their next adventure against the Colterans. Next mission, whatever. And Cain uh, tells him, like, meet me here in 20 minutes out at this, like, storage bay. Sets up this little picnic area for them with some vodka to have a nice little moment together. This is adorable, by the way. <laughs> this might be their cutest scene together in the comic. It's at least yes, up there. Is. Yeah. He's just, like, set out a little mat and a few glasses for them. Like, the best other stuff is, like, post-sex couplet, uh, like, cuddling, but, like, this is, oh, I'm going to do a thing that is a actual romantic gesture. It's cute. Yeah. Kane says... <laughs> Let's play a game. One of us will ask a question, and the other has to answer and then take a drink. Abel agrees, but asks how that's a game. Kane ignores him, says, Anyway, I go first. We get this funny expression from Abel of just being like, Okay, ignore me. And... Has Abel never learned of spin the bottle? This is just spin the bottle, but you have two people, so the bottle just goes back to you. Yeah, it's spin the bottle, except we're just taking turns taking shots. But that's all it is. And in that spirit, Kane starts out the first question, going right for it, asks, 
how come you never had sex before we met? And says, because on the colonies, with the way you look, you could have had anyone you wanted. And Abel basically just talks about his dad's politician status and how hard it was for him to find people he could trust and just like how he felt like he couldn't be himself back home. So it's sort of bringing back that theme of like homophobia and like class playing into it as an issue as well and secrecy and just like his position as a politician's son. And they just talk a bit about him not getting along with his dad. Round two, Abel asks Cain if he's from the Mars colonies. Abel says yes. Cain's then just like, what was it like? And Cain's just like, you get one question, it's my turn again. Turns it back to sex, asks him about sexual fantasies. They talk about that for a minute before it goes back to Abel, who brings the topic back to what Cain's old life was like in the colonies. And Cain's just like, you're not getting the point of this. Abel's like, you said we had to ask questions. And Cain's just like, they're supposed to be sexy questions. Everyone knows that. And to be fair, everyone does know that. <laughs> but this is also our bonding, sweet little moment. And they just talk a bit about Kane's past, his family life. He grew up in what was a outpost city called New Volga on Mars. He was a good shot. Used to compete in tournaments just to earn some extra money. Always dreamed about leaving his old home. Refers to it as a shithole. But now that he has escaped, he just wants to get back home. They talk about fighting Colterans, or Terrans for short. Uh, refer to them as cowards who sneak attacked us. Um, we then get a little bit of just like dialogue, like delivering exposition. Saying that... In their first contact with the Colterans, the Colterans shot down an orbital station above Mars out of the sky, declared that Mars was theirs and the colonists were trespassing. And it's at that point that barriers were erected and the current fleet system with fighters and navigators was formed. And just outside of the city where Kane grew up, there was an old piece from the downed orbital station just left and sometimes Kane would go out there alone at night and just sort of sit on the ruined husk of spaceship look up at the stars feel alone in the universe and during this discussion of his past and his parents uh Kane unintentionally or like without thinking about it does an impression of his mom calling out for him saying Alexi, Alexi, which Abel then latches onto immediately, realizing that's his name. But then Kane is immediately like freaked out and withdraws from the conversation and sense of intimacy. Like the name reveal is too much for him right now. Abel tells him that his name is Ethan. He tries to calm Kane down, get him to take it easy. And Kane is. Just clearly very uncomfortable with all of this. Soon they hear voices coming down the hall. They quickly abscond. The cute little moment is over. And Kane is like, run away. Yeah, their moment of getting nice and intimate is ended now that things have gotten a bit too close to home and to Kane's memory for him to be comfortable. Um, we get characters talking about the mission tomorrow and just, you know... Everything's gearing up for the attack on the enemy base that they've all been traveling to do this whole time. It's all going to get very climactic very soon. And Porphos finds Demos, asks him if he knows where Cain and Abel are, since he knows that Demos is always sniffing after him. He notices that Demos is sad, just remarks, I see he dumped you, which pisses Demos off. And just a reminder again, these two are partners. These are a navigator-fighter pair, although very clearly begrudging. Neither of them respects each other. They don't spend time together outside of when they have to. Porfo says, You know, I used to wonder sometimes why we were assigned together, but now I see we're not so different. I think we both want what we can't have. And if we can't be happy... 
it doesn't seem right that he should be, does it? Come on, let's find Abel. And we just get their sort of... Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, their sort of looks of resolution and... Scheming. That's the word, yeah. Nothing good for the people that they're trying to find. And that is how Chapter 4 of Starfighter wraps up. Still very different from Final Crisis. A little bit. This feels like a real shift. That was my goal. (laughs) Was to give us some variety. But yeah, that, that concludes the penultimate chapter of Starfighter. That is the last cliffhanger before the final chapter. And yeah, with that essentially the end of what we're discussing for this episode. What do you think? How does it, does it effectively build your interest to see how it's all going to end. Yeah. Yeah. Any final thoughts or anything? No. No, nothing that doesn't relate directly to the next chapter, so we should talk about it next week. Because, you know, read ahead. We didn't record this as strictly in separate segments as we did with uh, Final Crisis, so I actually know how this all ends. (laughs) Well, the thing is with this that... The total cumulative airtime of these episodes is going to be much shorter than the final Crisis Freeparter was. Yes, well, we're not doing anything as big or as crazy as Final Crisis ever again, frankly. No. I don't know if we could, actually. I'm trying to, what could we cover that is more insane and difficult to talk about than Final Crisis? I'm like... Rawhide Kid and the Sensational Seven. It's not that complex. He had a team? He does have a team in the next Rawhide Kid we have to talk about. Okay. We'll get to that eventually. It's not at all as complex as Final Crisis, of course, but... He should turn out to be a mutant and then get resurrected into present-day Marvel Universe via the uh, waiting room. Or No, that's that's not the waiting room. What's the other thing called that Scarlet Witch set up? I don't remember. The thing that, that we basically... Just sort of got Thunderbird back from, and that's it. Because that's the only difference that really made, practically for the readers. His mutant power is just heightened hand-eye coordination. Oh, no, no, no. His mutant power is completely irrelevant to his skills as a gunfighter. He can, like, fart ice cream or something. I think that's better. Like, Like, part of what makes him cool is his skill, right? And having it not be mutant skill. Yeah, I think that's better. But I'm like... It would just, like, I can't, that's the easiest mechanism I can think of, just putting him in present-day Marvel stuff, because I just think that would be funny. Imagine, like, the Raw High Kid Iceman comic. But anyway. (laughs) Next week, we're going to be discussing Starfighter Chapter 5, so stay tuned for that. Read up, get caught up, and we'll catch you then when we discuss the finale to this comic. Bye. Bye. Excellent to each other.